What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Black Ministers Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Bird, and my other host sitting next to me is... Rachel Weaver. You guys already know. So excited to be here with you once again. We are. Super excited to be doing the podcast. Looking forward to lots of uh, good times ahead. We're going to kick it off with our uh, Menaces in History segment. I don't know. I haven't figured out what to call it yet. Menaces in History, Menace Moments. We'll figure it's it a, out. It's a Menace Moment. Menace Moment? Okay, we'll call it Menace Well, it's moment. hit him in his life, mm-hmm. so... <laughs> Yeah, and then y'all be sure to you know once you start hearing this podcast, be sure to email in the Black Menaces Podcast at gmail dot com with uh, different menace moments and things like that. We'll have the link up, but you know anything that you've done to be a menace in your uh, your community, we want to hear about it. But to start off today, we're gonna focus on Fred Hampton, the OG menace. This man was such a menace that uh, the government said, "No, nah, we got to get rid of this dude." Mm-hmm. So he was the leader of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Um, he was a powerful speaker at a young age. He was actually only 21 when he died. Um, but people came from miles around just to hear him speak. And his message wasn't just uh, wasn't just pro-black. It was pro-anyone who was disadvantaged. And so a lot of what he focused on was, was poor people. Um, and his message was so powerful that he actually got invited to speak way out in redneck country. So he was out there with the hillbillies talking to them um, and, you know, in, encouraging them to unite. Um, and it got to the point where the government... Um, they decided that he was a threat, and so they linked, they lumped uh, the Black Panther Party and uh, Fred Hampton into their program called COINTEL Pro, which was designed to, I guess, take out terrorist organizations in the United States. Um, another notable member of that program was the KKK, right? So the Black Panther Party was lumped in as terrorists with the, the Ku Klux Klan, which I think is ironic. Um, it's also ironic that the Black Panther Party isn't really around anymore and the Ku Klux Klan is still going strong so I you know very Mm. effective program there that's a a story for another time Um, he was murdered by the government in December 1969 at age 21 police uh, quote-unquote raided his apartment and fired 99 shots into it the Black Panthers only shot one time so I'm not sure um, why that response was was necessary but um, uh, sedatives were found in his system after uh, his, you know, his his murder um, in his autopsy, they found sedatives in his system. They're not really sure how they got there, but it's speculated that he was drugged by an FBI informant. And then uh, later on, Chicago police opposed naming a street after him. I suppose because of the stigma and the label of the Black Panthers as being terrorists. Um, you know, it's not true. Black Panther Party was not terrorists. They were actually initially started to feed kids breakfast who didn't uh who didn't get breakfast right and um it turned into a pro a pro-black movement and um you know part of the message of the black panther party was to defend themselves um you know because the police were coming into to neighborhoods black neighborhoods and uh, basically just terrorizing the area you know we we're being terrorized by uh, white supremacist groups by hate groups and so the black panther party was formed as a way of protecting our communities from that um that's actually you know it's also why the, the Bloods and Crips were started um, as, as a ways to protect the black community. Um, and it's unfortunately morphed into something different. But it started off uh, just like the Black Panthers. But that's our Menace Moment for today, Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn more about him, a movie came out about him a couple years ago, Judas and the Black Messiah. And then you can also look up uh, other information. I got the information today from mentalfloss.com. He's awesome. As a Chicago native, I... I'm very upset that they opposed naming a street after him because we've got streets named after every single president, even the ones who weren't the best. So that's upsetting. 
Is there Andrew Jackson Street? Yes. We don't call it Thomas Andrew. It's just Jackson. Jackson Street. Jackson is the street that I got <laughs> off every single. That's the train stop I got off on coming from school to go home. Like that's and I would get on the bus at Jackson. So, wow. Was he the? Or was it? Was it him or was it Thomas Jefferson that? Like raped a bunch of slaves. And I'm pretty. I know it was Jefferson. Was it probably it might have been Jackson too, but I know it was Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, He's the one who um had the also. what was her name? Uh, he had a bunch of uh he had a black like mistress yeah, or her name was Sally. Yes, Sally Hemings. Hemings. Right. Yeah. Don't, anyway. Don't yes. Us. No. That that's her. No. Mm. That that's the story. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And then there's a speculation that George Washington's teeth were from slaves have you heard that before <gasps> no yeah like his false teeth there's I don't know if it's true it's giving get out yeah I've heard that like <laughs> his teeth were, came from from the slaves that he owned honestly not but, surprised you know, dude was from Virginia yeah do we really think that he was yeah and there's so much horrific stuff that happened during slavery that we don't know and we still don't know because they have obviously they don't they didn't want that to come out so well today guys we're gonna answer some questions about being at a predominantly white institution, which most black students or BIPOC students call a PWI for short. So we'll be referencing that a lot in this episode, just so you kind of know. So we have gotten questions from other people, um, whether just talking to them or in our comments about any tips that we have for attending a PWI as a black student. Nate, do you want to take us away on that? Yeah, I feel like I've answered this question so many times lately. But um, the biggest tip I can give, don't assimilate, right? Uh, there's a lot of pressure to try and fit in in a place, but just hold out for your community, um, whatever that may be. You know, If there's something that you're passionate about, wait for that community to come along. Don't try to change yourself to fit into uh, what other people's ideas of you should be. Right? I made that mistake my freshman year. Um, you know, I, I made some pretty good friends, but I also I did a lot of uh, self-compromising where I tried to be a certain way to be more approachable, to be more likable. And it took a toll on my mental health. I didn't realize that until later on. But yeah, it definitely took a toll on my mental health, um, just trying to be someone who I was not. And so once I accepted that, hey, I'm just going to be who I am. I'm this like weird combination of introverted and extroverted. I think they call it an omnivert. I don't know. Yeah. I'm introverted yeah. around people I don't trust or like, and then I'm extroverted around people I love. So, you know, we're not going to get into race or nothing like that. But <laughs> I tend to be more extroverted when I'm around a fellow, fellow black. Um, but yeah, so just don't try to assimilate. Find your community. Reach out to the Black Student Union. See if they're doing meetings or, you know, if it's Hispanos Unidos or or whatever it is, find your community. And uh, when you feel comfortable, then that's where you need to be. If you feel uncomfortable, don't try to force it. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Nate said. I also think that when you attend a PWI, you have to do a lot of self-care and a lot of um, taking time for yourself and being aware of your mental health. Because personally, I had never gone to a PWI before BYU. So I feel like students who maybe attended a PWI growing up, you might have different coping mechanisms that you're used to. But for me, especially my first year of college, I had to take a lot of time to validate myself and validate the experiences that I was having. And that's like mental health because 
you feel crazy sometimes. You're like, am I imagining this? Is this really reality? Are my feelings real? Am I making them up almost? Like you question your experience. And so I think for me, that's my biggest tip also is taking time for your mental health and going to see professionals if your school offers uh, mental health services for free, I would try to do that because um, I needed to do that my freshman year and talk through a lot of the feelings that I was feeling being the only black person in so many spaces, which you, it sounds small, but if you really haven't experienced it a lot, it's a it takes a big toll on your mental health. And right now I'm in a better space, obviously because I have better coping mechanisms, I have a better community, um, and I'm just more comfortable in the spaces but if that's um, a first transition for you I really think you do need to take that time and that's why Nate said having that community and seeking out a community that can support you is really critical because that will make the difference between you feeling validated by people around you versus other people feeling the fire of you feeling maybe um, like you already don't fit in and people not validating the feelings that you do have. I agree with that for sure. Also, I just had this thought. I want to bring this up. White people, we love you, okay? When we talk about white people, black people, whatever, it's going to come up a lot. Just know we're not talking about all white people. We know that there are plenty of y'all who are good folks. But we also know that there's a whole lot of things that go on um, that, that none of us should be proud of. But, yeah, just know when we talk about white people or when we talk about race on this show, we're not calling out anybody specific mm-hmm. unless we call them out by name, right? So just know... <laughs> We don't have any hate for nobody or anything like that. We're just talking, okay? Just want to throw that out there. And to add on that, I want to say that white people also need to um, transfer. This is me being very blunt. White people need to stop taking things personally. If we say white people... Sometimes we are talking about you as a whole. It doesn't mean you as an individual are a bad person, but as a min- as a black person who identifies with a marginalized community, sometimes just the group overall, even if they're harmless, even if they aren't trying to be mean and whatever, just being in those types of spaces sometimes just don't make us feel safe. Mm-hmm. And there's not really necessarily some something someone did or didn't do that makes us feel that way. It's just our existence and the way that we have been socialized with race and culture and expressing ourselves. Like sometimes a white person, they don't have to say anything to me. But when I walk into a room full of white people, I'm automatically less comfortable and less confident being me and expressing myself culturally as an African-American. Mm-hmm. No one has to say anything to me. No one does anything to me. It's just the way that I've been socialized up to this point. And so I also think that white people need to take that into account, that it's not personal. Sometimes it's literally just like the social construction of race in America and the way that we interact with one another that impacts the way I'm going to interact with you before you even speak to me. That's very true. I'm a lot less open and trusting when I walk into a space um, that's full of white people. It's just a sad reality, right? There's this... uh, I'm so glad I don't have to do it anymore. But I had this job where I had to go to this networking meeting. And um, it would be like a bunch of small business owners. And everybody in there was white except for like a couple of people um, who were married to white people. Right. So, um, you know, I would have to go into this space and they wanted me to network. And I was just like, man, I do not enjoy this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want to network. Um, and I did it. But it was very just on the inside. It was, it was always this feeling of not wanting to be there. And then I went to this event, this uh, D9 event, and there was a bunch of black business owners there, a bunch of 
um, you know, black professionals. And I was like, man, I want to talk to everybody. I want to get to know this person. I want to know more about this person. And it was just kind of a subconscious thing. But I was like, I feel so much more comfortable in this space with these people than I do in this space with these people. Right. So, yeah, like Rachel said, you know, we're not we're not hating on anyone, but sometimes we're just talking generally. And the whiteness and white people are kind of synonymous at times, right? Whiteness is very different, mm-hmm. though. Um, whiteness is just like the culture overall. When we talk about whiteness, we're talking about, you know, ego. We're talking about privilege. We're talking about, um, you know, the lack of awareness, right? You mm-hmm. see a lot of whiteness on display in our videos, right? If you check those yep. out, the, the fact that people don't know who Trayvon Martin is, the fact that people don't know what Colin Kaepernick stands for, the fact that people... Um, are not aware of Kataji Brown Jackson being nominated to the Supreme Court. The ability to not know that is, you know, that's a privilege, right? Because mm-hmm. for some of us, like, we can't go without ever knowing that. Like, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, you know, I grew up in a black family, and we didn't talk too much about, you know, current events and issues and things like that going on in the world, but I still knew who Trayvon Martin was. Like, I knew when he died, I knew. Um, you know, I, I was following the case. Like, I was aware of all of those things because I didn't have the privilege to not know about that, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, that's that. Anyway, another question? Um, or do you have how, well, I mean, kind of in the same vein, how do you navigate a predominantly white space? Yeah. Um, that's a question. That's a, ooh, look at us. We just segued right on. I know, there. perfect. Yeah, so, okay, so navigating a predominantly white space sometimes there's just no easy way to do it if you got to be there you got to be there um with college you kind of got to be you got to be there get that coin (laughs) i i I disagree with college but that's the story oh i'm dead (laughs) (laughs) uh being a graduate to myself i'm a hypocrite but um yeah when you got to be in those spaces i would just say don't stay in those spaces longer than you have to, right? If you got to be in a predominantly white space, make sure you find yourself a quiet place. For me, whenever I had to be on campus, I had we had the black table that we hung out at. And then I also found my own little quiet place on campus. It was up on the fifth floor of this, the, the student center. Um, there's this little hallway that hardly anybody was ever in. And I would just go up there and I would do my homework up there. I'd be up there for hours. It's not, you know, just completely quiet. Only people that came up there was like the maintenance people. And so I would just hang out in that hallway. So if you can find you a quiet space um, on, on a campus or in a predominantly white institution, um, or if you can find a community to hang out with while you're on campus, then do that. Get in there, do your business and get out. Um, if it's a professional space or a workspace, then just, you know, there will always be a couple people that's cool in, you know, whatever space you're in. And so just do your best to find those people. If you can't find them, then just you know don't try to assimilate don't try to fit in just be yourself and people will come to you um, if they don't then i don't know what to tell you just 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 muddle through it i guess that's my pessimistic viewpoint maybe richard got something better to add. i mean i yeah i agree with everything nate said i also think that for me personally sometimes when i'm in predominantly white spaces i find myself mentally questioning myself more mentally um reflecting on my actions reflecting on my words more than i do when i'm in a community of people i feel safe with does that make sense what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and i think that that's really mentally taxing it's mental gymnastics that is just not fair and so i think for me i'm a bit i'm a firm believer and don't associate with people who make you feel that way and 
you feel like you have to do that with. I feel like I did that a lot my first year of college at BYU because I really, I wanted to have the BYU experience, the student experience. Um, and really, again, I speak about BYU because this is my main experience being in a predominantly white space or also my mission. And I think that you just have to literally, I just don't associate. That sounds probably not plausible for some people but I literally only associate in spaces that I don't feel like I have to do that in and for me that is being with other minority students um also being a part of the social sciences has been that space for me um but in other spaces like if I go to a random ward that's how I feel when I'm with just random white people who go to BYU that I don't know anything about and so I think really like Nate said finding spaces that you feel you can be yourself in that helps relieve that pressure because at least in my experience in predominantly white spaces, it has less to do with the the like white people and more has to do with the mentality of the people that are there and how, what I know that they're thinking about me and what they believe about me and their assumptions about me. If I know that they think that black people are ignorant, if I use a slang word, I I question, why did I say that in front of them? Now they're going to think, you know, I'm representing all black people to them. They're going to think all black people are like this. And then I'm like, oh, well, why did I? I'm a very extroverted, loud person. But as a black woman, we have the stereotypes of being loud, aggressive, all these things. But that's just kind of my personality. That has nothing to do with me being black. And so if I act that way in front of a group of white people, I'm like, oh, I question and I think about it. But when I'm around my friends who I know know me as an individual, I don't think like that. I don't worry about that. And so, um, yeah, I think just protecting yourself. And I worry as I enter the workforce coming soon, as I get a job and what that will look like. So I don't really have experience in terms of that. But I think on our college campus, um, really just, I always tell people, I do not associate with the main BYU population because when I do, I feel terrible about myself. Um, Yeah, so I think just moving away from those people if you can. It's, it's easier than you think. It's hard at first, but once you find that group, you actually find more and more people a part of that community that you feel like you can be yourself in. Mm-hmm. That's true. Especially at bigger schools that are more liberal than ours. There's probably more people on your side than true, yeah. at BYU. So. And don't say they don't exist, because if we could find it at BYU, right. Provo, Utah, Come on. then you can find it where you're at. Thank you. They're, they're out there. Right? And it's, sometimes it's better just to be chilling by yourself than it is to be in a group of people that you that you don't you that you know you don't belong in right mm-hmm. so just wait hold out for that that group but, you know. and you have to seek that out though yeah. that's what a big thing because a lot of people who come to BYU they don't seek it out until like their last year of college and then they're like oh why is my experience so poor it's like you were trying and no one's faulting anyone who did this um but you spent the last three years trying to assimilate so much and you wonder why you have mental anguish and now you found this group like seek it out immediately as soon as you can yeah, and by those groups, that's other minority groups, even political organizations like Demo- if you have a Democrat or liberal group, um, even if you don't necessarily identify politically with that, people who are more liberal are more open-minded normally. Not always. There's still going to be some crazy people everywhere you mm-hmm. go, but normally people who lean more left are going to be more open and understanding to different experiences and perspectives. I will say, so just to, to kind of... I will say that yeah, there's a lot of people who are like more open-minded, but I also think that like the the media, the way media portrays everybody, 
Like you got radicals on both sides. Right? Agreed. Like left radicals, Agreed. right radicals. I've talked to plenty of people who are very like conservative who are still decently open minded. This is true. Things, right? This so, is true. You know, there's that. But I agree. Yeah, you know, it it does tend to feel like um, I prefer to be around people who are liberal. I wouldn't go to the conservative club though. No, I would not no, go to absolutely. BYU Republicans no, looking for friends. You're in that club. You, right, you see what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. why I'm saying like don't go to BYU conservatives uh-huh. if you want to. <laughs> Right, it's, that's the people that are like, ah, the blacks. Right, action. exactly. They're the ones who want to argue with you about why we need to not have food stamps or something. Right, it's just crazy. Anyway, next question. Okay, next question that I found um, in our comments is, someone's just saying they don't go to BYU, and so they're really just curious on ways that BYU actually is racist and discriminatory. So they, they want to know... Like, what, like what things at BYU, yeah. Oh. are racist and discriminatory well i mean you can go check out my little personal uh tiktok page that i is made a, a video about this. yes that is a great tiktok and this got like thousands and thousands of comments I, it, that one found its way into the wrong stream of comments cause oh really hate me on that video. oh really yeah. i haven't read the comments okay i'm gonna go read it after go read this. the comments then people hate me on there <laughs> I got trolls left and right but it's all right it got like six hundred thousand views so i'm not mad at it oh wow really yeah. oh my mm. okay. but um yeah things that are racist at byu where do we start well, um, I think there's, so the thing, there, there's not necessarily any policies that are blatantly, like, anti-black, right? But there are a lot of policies uh, based on a certain way of thinking, based on a certain culture, that do discriminate against uh, certain populations. So, for example, back in, I think, the 60s or 70s, BYU instituted this ridiculous rule where you couldn't have a beard on campus. You could only have a mustache, which I think is... look. Yeah, it was during the, like, during the Vietnam War yeah. or something like that. I think the idea was they didn't want people to look like hippies because yes. hippies were dirty, nasty, you know, gr- I don't know, whatever yeah. idea they had. It was like mm-hmm. the very, you know, all the old people at the top of the, the church food chain um, thought that the hippie movement was anti christian you yeah go back and read they thought it was communism and all this stuff. right and um so they 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 made it against the the byu law to have a beard and so now you got a lot of people walking around with creepy mustaches although thankfully that's faded away because it yeah. used to be just it looked like child yeah more people have right. beards on campus than you think yeah mm-hmm. but when they have to go take a test they shave it yeah you and you can get yeah they don't they don't care as much anymore but yeah you you can go get like a beard card um, basically, you have to go pay a doctor money, um, and then you go to the doctor. They look at your face. Then you go home. You shave for a week. Every you shave every day for a week, and then once you get all the bumps and the rash and everything on your face, then you go back to the doctor and they sign off a note saying, "Okay, you you don't have to shave." And then you take that to BYU, and they give you a special mark that says you could have a beard on campus. And so. Um, you know, that's not specifically discriminatory against black people because when it was made, there weren't hardly any black people on campus. However, um, it's a well-known fact that black people, especially black men, um, have a more difficult time with shaving and growing facial hair and things like that because um, our, our hair tends to be very curly. And so what it does is it curls and it goes back inside the skin, causes ingrown hairs, mm-hmm. painful razor bumps and things like that. And so... Um, you know, we don't shave as often, most of us, and, you know, it's harder for us to shave as frequently. So having to go pay money to get a beard card is, you know, it, it discriminates more against black men because 
we have that problem much more frequently than with a white person who shaves every day. Um, I don't know. I'll think of some other ones. But what, you got any? I mean, going off honor code, there's the rule also about male about how long a man's hair can be. It can't go past his oh, yeah. ear or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but not just black people. This there's Extreme hairstyles is the... Oh, yeah, that's the, also mm-hmm. in the honor code language. But the hard thing is that's left up to interpretation of whoever's in the honor code office or whoever decides to report you. And the thing is, black people's hair is just so different that when we try to put the same rules that we use to judge white people's hair against black people's hair it's just not gonna work out because our hair is so different like um like your brother got reported didn't he oh yeah that that's a whole nother story we should have him on until that one time but you know it's just like example nate you have your growing dreads right now black people do things like this to to take care of our hair like dreads are not allowed technically on black men but if a black man does not brush his hair his hair is going to dread up naturally. You know what I mean? So th- there's certain things that I'm like, I think that that is discriminatory unconsciously. There's Native American people who they grow their hair out really long because it's cultural. I don't fully understand what the hair means, but I know that it is important to their culture. But you men cannot have long hair, so they would have to cut it. And to me, I'm like, that doesn't make sense because that's someone's culture. That's a part of who they are as an individual. And the fact that BYU's policies do not have that considered and it is a problem to me and that's what we mean when we look at institutions that are built for white people that were made by white people with white people's air quote culture or ideas considered without looking at other marginalized groups that now are part of these communities and the policies still haven't been updated and BYU very much knows and has heard complaints from many ethnic groups about their honor code um, policies that negatively impact Students of color. Mm-hmm. Um, should I tell the story about my brother and his hair really quick? Yeah, so go for okay. it. Okay. So, okay, yeah. So my the first year of my first year of college, um, my brother dyed his hair blonde, and I, I think a lot of black men. I know a lot of black men who've gone through their dye hair blonde phase. <laughs> Nate, you you didn't have one of those, did you? Though. I did not. Okay, that's good. I was too safe. Yeah, I, I it, most black men that I know go through it. It's it's not the best time in their life, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they all go through a kind of phase where they, they dye their hair to some degree. My brother's hair looked like ramen noodles. Love him, but again, wasn't the best look. That's beside the point. So he has his hair blonde, right? Um, and he's at BYU. And he went to go get a new ID photo because um, he had lost it. And so when he had gotten this new ID photo, to get to do anything on campus, like get photos, um, to get services, you have to look an honor code. Because um, if you're violating any honor code, physical grooming grooming standards they will not serve you and so um they gave him his id but the girl who took the photo i guess decided that his hair was not in the byu grooming standards and reported him to the honor code office so my brother at this time when they were reported to honor code you didn't know why you went up there so he went up there like what did i do like what's going on and they're like well someone has said that your hairstyle is like against the standards and the person he spoke with said, oh, your hair color is an unnatural hair color. Because in the honor code, the wording is no unnatural hair colors, which means like blue, green, pink, things like that. That's how I interpret it. But they said, oh, that's an unnatural hair color for you as a black person. Because black people don't have blonde hair. And Ronald which said, false. Which is not true. But also, 
we're now telling people that they can't dye their hair blonde. So that means everybody with blonde highlights has to go, all those balayages, all the old ladies who dye their hair to not make it be gray. Thank you. You know what I mean? Natural them- brunettes at BYU are blonde. Thank you. And so my brother was sitting there like, are you seriously telling me? Because I'm, so the reason why it's not a natural hair color is because I'm black. And that's literally what she said. She's like, yeah, it's not a natural hair color to you. And yeah, my brother went off and got very upset. And then he had to call somebody else in who was a little more understanding and had more, I guess, experience with air quote diverse communities. Um, And eventually the issue didn't become um, something on his record. But the fact that my brother even had to deal with that is just an example of how BYU um, can inherently be discriminatory towards people of color. Mm-hmm. I had another friend who uh, was a black woman. She had some braids, mm. in, and her braids had like uh, some red in them. And they turned her away from the testing center. She wasn't allowed to take her test because her hair was an unnatural or extreme hairstyle. Um, I think they got that resolved too. But just the fact that somebody looked at her and was like, oh, you have red in your braids, therefore you cannot take this test. The fact that anybody, like a student, another student, would have that kind of power to just like, no, you can't take your test, that's wild to me. And mm-hmm. you know, there's like there's plenty of people on campus who, you know, have what might be considered an extreme grooming style or what have you that, that don't, don't have to deal with that. Um, I had another story. I forgot what it was, though. Well, something I wanted to bring up is in the mm-hmm. race report that the like race committee made when they wrote their suggestions to BYU, something I just want to highlight is just the lack of BIPOC applicants at BYU. Um, and this isn't necessarily inherently discriminatory towards um, BIPOC students, but I think we need to look at the fact that black, indigenous other people of color are not applying to BYU. They, even though majority of membership in the church now globally is more um, BIPOC people Mm -hmm. because of other nations, but the fact that these numbers are so low at BYU, it's showing, I mean, obviously there's a lot tied in here that's bigger than just BYU, but I also think that BYU itself as a church-run school needs to look at this. And so in 2020, there were... 9,987 applicants that were white, and then there were only 2,020 applicants that were BIPOC. And that's everything. That's black people, Hispanic people, Polynesian people, everyone. That's so small. Like, that is really, really small. And then then they broke it down by race. And so black students specifically, there were only... Uh, 54 black applicants in the 2020 um, like application school year and then out of those 54 only 21 of those students were accepted so think about that and uh, out of the and then that year there were um, how many okay I'm trying to see the numbers sorry yeah that that's super small so like, out of 11,000 applicants only 50 of them were black Mm-hmm. And then twenty of them got in. Well, there's also multiracial, which could consider that's true. That, that, that yeah, the, yeah. the multiracial category has one thousand three hundred thirty-two students that okay, yeah. identify yeah. in that. And there's definitely black students who probably identify. I'm assuming that are like they present black, yeah. but they are um, black and, a, and that's white. That's a tricky. That's a tricky category to be into. But that category that can also can include like there's a lot of half Hispanic students. 
um, mm-hmm. because of interracial marriage in the church and half Asian students. But there's also, I know there are definitely black students in that category. That's very true, yeah. But still, that's so small. 54? Yeah, and BYU is 81% white. And do you have the graduation rate thing on there? Yes, too? the graduation yeah, rate. Graduation rate. Okay, this is the six-year graduation rate. BYU has six years because of missions, I'm assuming. Um, yeah. Okay, sorry, it keeps jumping. Okay, the rate for... White students is seventy nine percent. So out of all the stu- all the white students that are, that come to BYU, seventy nine percent of them graduate in the, within six years. Um, for two or more races, seventy eight percent, which I guess is multiracial. Asian students, seventy seven percent. Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, sixty eight. Hispanic or Latino, sixty six. Black, fifty four, and then American Indian or Alaska Native um, is forty one percent. Within six years. Abysmal. Absolutely abysmal. So you got to ask yourself, why is it so much more difficult for um, for students of color to graduate than it is for white students? Because white students, are, they're leading the pack, right? And then down at the bottom, you've got uh, you know black students and Native American students graduating mm-hmm. at a much lesser, much lesser rate. And I personally know a lot of black students that came to BYU and then decided to leave because they, they couldn't. You couldn't take uh, the situ- you know, the, the, the environment here, right? And it's definitely not for everybody. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, I would say another thing that's not necessarily a policy, but just really like a mindset. First of all, it is an extremely conservative religious university. That makes it It's difficult. the most conservative university, right? Ah, I've seen reports where it was voted number one. It might not be anymore, but yeah. it has been. But yeah, so, so there's that, and so that automatically makes it a little bit more difficult if you're a person of color, because so many of the issues that um, conservatives uh, oppose or support directly affect people of color at yep. a much higher scale than would other ones. And so, um, you know, a lot of those things can, can play a role into, you know, the way that people think here. And then also, uh, a lot of the professors and the, you know, just church members believe a certain way about people of color. Um they believe that people with dark skin are cursed. Uh, and, you know, the church doesn't officially teach that on the record books anymore. However, they do. Uh, there are still lots of people who teach that. Um, there have been professors. I've personally sat in classes where professors have, have talked about uh, the curse of, of blackness and things like that. I mean, they'll say, oh, you know, we don't believe that anymore. And it's like, well, then why are you teaching it? Why are you even bringing it up? And what do you mean anymore? Like, what do you mean I used to be cursed, but now I'm not? How does that work? You can't just... That's not how that works. Yep. So it's like, I was cursed because I'm black. Now you're still black, but you're not cursed. So it implies like, oh, you're going to be white when you die and go to heaven. That's not how this works. And I certainly hope not because I'm not trying to eat mac and cheese. (laughs) But also, why would would God make us this different to all of a sudden make us all be the same? Mm Mm-hmm. And the next when we return to live with him, that 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 makes no sense to me. But yeah, the underlying thing is that God is racist, and that just doesn't make sense to me. I don't, right? I don't think God is a racist, you know. So yeah, we'll leave it at that. But yeah, that's well. I mean, we have one more question. Oh, yeah, we can kind of segue into to kind of wrap it up in a more positive note. Mm-hmm. It's what kind of things could a PWI to make it safer and more inclusive for BIPOC students? Ooh, yeah, good one. So one thing they can do open up resources for specifically for students of color, right? Yes. BYU is just now opening up their Office of Belonging. I have my own qualms and issues with mm-hmm. that. Was, They're not know, saying diversity. They refuse to say because diversity. Because that's divisive. Exactly. And I, wow. I, was, yeah, mm-hmm. I was sitting in that meeting and I asked the question, why won't y'all include the term diversity in the <laughs> Office of Belonging? 
You say, oh, it's just too divisive. And I said, well, you realize that the only people who think it's divisive are the people who don't want the diversity. office. And he's like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we're going to keep it that way. And I was like, okay. all right, So I'm already a little skeptical about that office. We'll see how that goes. But uh, opening up a real office uh, for diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, mm-hmm. all those things. And uh, making sure that there are resources for students of color. That means mental health services. That means, um, you know, areas where students can gather. That's another thing we tried to do here at BYU. We tried to get a space. So many times. You know how hard it was to just get a room? We are like, hey, can we have a room where black students can just be with each other? And they said no. I was like, all right. We can't have a room? Like, well, one, one lady we asked. You weren't there for that. No. One lady we asked. Um she's she's one of the byu administrators you know, oh, one gosh. of the vice presidents of the university we asked her hey you know could we get a room and she said well we don't we just don't have the space and that's a lie i was like there's not a room on campus she's like well i, I just don't know I, i'll look into it but i don't think we have room for it i was like you don't have room to give us a space just for you know it doesn't have to be all day it could just be reserving a room in the student center once a week no space and i was like all right no room in the end huh okay <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, so, so, you know, just making space for students, um, I think, is huge. Because you make space for the things you care about. You know, if there's something that you care about, you make sure that you're there for it. You make sure you got time in your schedule, what have you. It should be the same with universities. If they truly care about making something happen, then it's going to get done. Um, I, I, oh, I just want to add that I think a lot of what's centered around what they can do to help BIPOC students is people are afraid. People, you know, in one of our videos when we asked about reparations one of the girls said oh we should stop trying to even things out and treat people blah blah people think that when you're going to treat someone differently air quote that you're giving them a handout that you're you that the other group is now down because they're giving something else and the reality is there's just challenges that people BIPOC students face that white students do not have to face and they need there needs to be resources like Nate said and policies put into place to overcome those differences. That's where that equity piece comes in, especially, you know, in my time at BYU as a black student, I have done so much that a white student does not have to worry about, does not have to do. On top of being a student, I have to talk with my classmates about race. I have to worry about racial things. I have to deal with comments that are made by professors X, Y, Z, and that's more on my mental health. But I still have to show up and take my tests every day the same way that white student does, right? It's the same way that first-generation college students have more challenges, right? They have to work more normally. They know less, but they're expected to perform the same way that students who whose parents brought them all the way up to the, this point of coming to college mm-hmm. and still are helping them financially, things like that. That's why people who do not have the same experiences need to have resources available to help them. And so, like you said, a space would be good. Yeah, white students don't need a space because they don't have the same safety cultural concerns that other minority students do. And so I think that that's a lot of what BYU needs to do. And they just need to not be afraid of what white students, white parents are going to say because to me I feel like that's most of it mm-hmm. half of it is that people don't see the need for it because they don't understand the experience of a non-white student but also I think part of it is that they're afraid of that reaction of what will they look like when they see that they're air quote treating black students different Native American students different when it's like no you're you're not treating them different you're just giving them a place to catch up because of the other things that they face that white students just don't deal with mm-hmm. there's a uh 
is considered to be controversial by certain people, but it's really not. It's just common sense. Um, I think it was Ibram X. Kendi who said that uh, discrimination in the past has to be corrected by discrimination in the present or something mm, along those lines. I love that. And uh, people are like, oh, that's, you know, so controversial and socialism and communism. But the thing is, no, that's just common sense. This, I mean, mm-hmm. if you have a scale, right, and you put a bunch of weights on one side of the scale, it's going to tip to one side. Mm-hmm. And then all you have to do to fix that is just discriminate to the other side of the scale. You add a whole bunch of weights and it evens out. You're not going to keep adding weights to this side and just let it keep going, right? You're going to like you're going to add weights to the other side to balance things out. Cuz if you add it to sense. both of them, it's still going to be uneven. Exactly, right. It's just common sense, but people think that's so controversial that oh, we have to make up for the mistakes we made in the past. And that's why things are not changing as quickly as we would like them to. Um, but at BYU another thing or just any PWI, another thing is representation. That's mm-hmm. huge. You got to have representation among the faculty, among the administrators. Literally. At BYU, uh, it's another thing that's on that, that race report. Uh, the the faculty is 74% white male, I believe. And then it's like less than 1% of you know black women, Hispanic women, Native American women, Asian women. Um, and, you know, it, those kinds of things are, are not good because you have a pretty decent amount of students coming here who need to see themselves reflected mm-hmm. in the faculty, who need to know, hey, this could be me one day. Like, you know, I'm much less likely if I'm a student of color, I'm much less likely to come to a university where all of my professors are, are white men for the most part, with the exception of a few, and think, oh, I can be in this position. I can be a professor here. I'm not going to think that because I don't see myself reflected. And that's just common sense. You know, if you don't see yourself that's psychology, that's not ways, like... <laughs> Right, yeah. If you don't see yourself reflected in some place, then it's much less likely that you're going to try and, and move into those spaces. And, you know, there's always people who are brave enough to do that, but it's just less likely for a lot of people. Once you see yourself in that position, mm-hmm. then it becomes easier to, to envision yourself getting there. And when you have diverse administrators, professors, fa- other faculty, staff, issues that affect marginalized communities are brought up because there are people from those communities right? People who have disabilities, they have different experiences than people who don't, right? You need people from all these different backgrounds to bring that experience so that you can have that awareness. In President's Council, there's one person of color right now. One. In a room full of a bunch of old white men. What do you think his experience is trying to bring up concerns that he's representing all marginalized people? He's Polynesian. You know, that is a lot for that one individual. And I think that is a lot of the reason why there's just no understanding of why there's issues of why there's no recognition of why we need a space for black students or whatever, because the people just don't have that experience. They just don't know that it's needed. Um, Something that our church loves to say with good information comes good revelation. Right. But there's I've heard people say that all the time. I've never heard that before. Oh, I've heard that before. With good information, you can get good revelation. I've never God's heard not that. gonna just it's 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 along the ideas of God isn't gonna just tell you how to, you know, pass this test if you've never studied for it, right? It's like when you have that information, God can help you, blah blah blah. So if that's what we really believe as members of this church and the BYU community, how 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 the hell do you think you're going to know what a black person needs if you don't talk to black people? If you don't have any administrators who are black, if you don't have any administrators who are Hispanic, who are who know what it's like to be an immigrant, such and such, like you need people from these backgrounds to shed light and then you need to listen to them. So when they do bring up the concerns, it's like, wow, I never thought of that. And not just ignore what they say, because that's also normally what happens, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> It's a, this is a good episode. It is. It's yeah. this is. I mean, it's an issue not just. And what we're saying isn't just issues at BYU. It's issues at all PWIs, mm-hmm. and it's also issues at all institutions, workplaces. Um, and this is why. And at least I can say other places are at least trying, right? They're they're places that are analyzing what their promotions look like. There are places that are analyzing, okay, we need a person. I know this one company that I was interviewing at. They have a person of color in every like C position or whatever. Like they want to make sure like each, like it's there's some type of diversity in every position and every group. And that's really important because if it's just a bunch of white, rich people making decisions, there's no way for that inclusion to really happen because that's just not their experience. And so everyone needs to kind of improve and work on this. And other places are doing better than others, but places like a BYU um, have, have need special help. <laughs> special because BYU that's the thing BYU's not even trying they say no. they are but they're not even trying no they're, they're doing not the bare minimum to stay out of the public eye yep and that's it because if they were actually trying then they would have named that office the office of diversity equity and inclusion instead of the office of belonging and that's why I said that fear they're more afraid of other people's reactions mm-hmm. also if they were trying then things would be getting done but that's you know if you can't tell, I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bitter too. That's why I'll never work for BYU. Everyone's like, go back and work for them, Rachel. And I'm like, do what? Work for who? I'm sorry. Also, they do not pay well enough for that. I'm sorry. To me, for, to work for BYU, they'd have to pay me 70K coming out of undergrad. If they pay me that, maybe I would consider it. But other than that, surely well, not. Just to start. <laughs> well. Oh, I think that's it for this episode. Yeah. On that note, we'll close it out. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. If you have any questions or menace moments that you'd like to share with me and Rachel, be sure to email us at blackmenacespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Black Menaces. And be sure to subscribe for exclusive video episodes on our Patreon, The Menace Society. Thank you guys, and make sure to always be a menace um, wherever you go and all the spaces that you're in because we got to be a menace to make the change that we want to see. Love it.